Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to bow our heads in prayer once more before we dive into God's Word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all of your goodness. Thank you for all of your uh, abundant mercy to us in the church. And one thing that uh, we don't fully understand is uh, the miracle of a church. Believers who are saved, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of the miracle of grace in our hearts to draw us to Jesus. And so this, Lord, is something unique. This gathering in all of its weaknesses and brokenness and uniqueness in this time of history is in many ways as close as we will get to heaven, gathered with the body of believers, proclaiming glory to the King who saved us and loving one another. And so I pray that the miracle of this gathering today is not lost on us. I pray that for those who are Christian in here, our hearts are led um, to a greater sense of participation in the mission to make disciples of all nations. I pray that those who are not in here, Lord, might be convicted of the wonderful grace that awaits them in Jesus, the love that atones for sin and justifies us before God. Lord, we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're nearing the end of 1 Peter, and uh, we've got two weeks today and next week left in 1 Peter, and then we're actually going to roll right into 2 Peter, um, because he, he kind of just is building and establishing on something that is important for us to understand uh, as a church in this time. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you've noticed that uh, suffering has taken center stage in the latter part of Peter's first letter. And there are all sorts of ways where we encounter suffering in this world, but Peter seems to be talking about three specific spheres in which Christians experience suffering. You might suffer first because you are a Christian. This is what we talked about last week, we talked about earlier in the book, where you suffer not simply as a Christian, but because you're a Christian. Hostility or conflict because of your faith in a fallen world. You might suffer, secondly, in the community of Christians, that is the church, we're going to encounter interpersonal conflicts and awkwardness amongst each other that can cause us to suffer. And lastly, and we'll see this next week, you might suffer in your heart as a Christian. Peter's going to turn and talk about the battle of temptation and sin in our own hearts. In other words, Peter's painting this lovely picture of following Jesus where there is uh, suffering outside of us, suffering inside of us, and suffering all around us. That is the picture Peter has painted for the Christian. And it's no surprise. He starts out his book saying, you Christians are elect exiles. Chapter 2, he calls us sojourners and strangers. To belong to Jesus is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And yet to belong to God through Christ is not to belong to the world. Yet this is where we live. We at times feel opposition. We feel alone and isolated. It's like those Discovery TV shows where they take the guy in the helicopter and they drop him off in the Arctic or in the desert and they kind of just say, let's see if he makes it. Let's see, see how he does in this sphere. But if you've seen those shows, you know that's not generally the end of the story because there's always a saving grace, isn't there? There's always the backpack. Dora has her backpack. Survivor Man has his backpack. And together they conquer all the adventures. 
And in the backpack, there's just some basic essentials that, you know, they try to make it to, to what an average hiker would have when he gets lost. And so maybe there's a knife, a map, a granola bar, some twine and tape. And as it unfolds, you see that it's the, whatever is in that backpack that gives him what he needs to endure this challenge in a hostile place. And as Christians, Peter's making the hope, he comes out of the gate swinging, though you are in exile, you're one who is beheld to a certain hope in heaven, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, guarded by faith in God. And yet, despite that, we are not yet in heaven. We have not yet been finally, ultimately, saved by being set in God's final place. We live life now in what is sometimes an inhospitable world with threats abounding. But God in his mercy has given people gifts. He's given us a backpack of essential items which in our sojourning and in a hostile wasteland help us to endure. He's mentioned some of these. He's talked about the Holy Spirit which indwells believers and empowers us and encourages us and reminds us of our hope and confidence in Christ He's given us his word, which we saw in chapter one, has caused us to be born again to a living hope by faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given us his scripture. But today, he's going to introduce a new gift. Another gift, which might seem like a novelty until it actually is used, and then you see it as essential. And this resource isn't divine like the Holy Spirit. It's not inerrant like God's word. But... It is a divine gift given at a great cost. And if you were in a dangerous, inhospitable place, you exhausted everything else in your backpack, and you reached in and you found this, it might be the last thing you think you want to see. Because it can be awkward, it can fail to work, prop, imp- it can fail to work properly, it can be cumbersome. But despite all of its failings, God has chosen to make this tool effective for the very purpose he created it for. It will not fail to accomplish all that God wants it to accomplish. What is this final tool for Christians in a hostile world? The local church. Peter's going to talk to those who are in a church as what it is to be a church. He's talking to a church by talking to those who make up the church. He's going to talk, not talk about the universal church, so he's not just talking about the church with a capital C of everyone who's saved everywhere, though that is truly the true church of Christ. He's going to talk, as we look in the text that Devin read for us, about elders who are among a flock, and flock who among them have elders. He's talking about specific churches with specific people filling specific roles. And as Devin read, we're in 1 Peter 5, the first five verses. Verses 1 through 4, Peter is writing to the elders. And in verse 5, he's writing to the general population of the church, the flock, the members who are there. We have eight elders in our church. Four of them are paid by the church. Four of them are non-vocational. We have eight elders. We have eight pastors. By my count, there's more than eight of us in here. And yet, the majority of our time is going to be spent speaking to elders. So why is it important for you, whether you're checking out Missoula on vacation or this is your church home or wherever it is you are, why is it important for the average person in here to pay attention to a text predominantly speaking to elders? Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, as a Christian, you will have elders. 
We already saw this in 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's a common theme throughout the New Testament. To be joined to Christ, who is our head, is to be joined to his body, which is the church. There's no category in the New Testament of Christians existing apart from a church. Therefore, if you are a Christian, if you are one who has repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you belong with his people, his church. You will, by nature of being part of the church, have pastors. So you want to listen because you will have elders. Number two, as a Christian, you actually get to choose your elders. The New Testament shows that the church as a congregation of saved individuals is responsible for the important task of calling and confirming their own elders. Here at Sovereign Hope, part of our membership responsibilities for our membership is to vote on and to approve and appoint elders from among them to lead them. So as you listen to this text, it should be shaping your eyes and your expectations of those whom you might appoint to lead you in the sense that scripture is teaching today. So you will have elders, you get to choose your elders, and then number three is that you will need your elders and elders will need their flock. When suffering comes, whatever the nature of that suffering is, we are prone to turn inward. Inward on ourselves, inward in sin, inward away from others. But it's God's body who pulls us back to respond rightly in obedience. Who pushes us to pursue holiness. Who pushes us to love others. And elders, as seen in this text, help care for us when things get difficult. Elders refuse to be turned inward. And instead, like a good shepherd, they pursue wounded sheep. And sheep care for others. And so what the church is meant to do in Peter's text here is to specifically care for each other because of the glory that awaits the church in heaven. So if you're wondering why we're talking about this, what you could take away, those three things help make it reasonable for us to say, I should listen to this. I have a vested interest in either seeing future elders in my body, appointing elders, or being cared for by elders. But the big picture, when we look at verses one through five, that we're gonna see today is this, is that the church works humbly to serve each other because of our hope in God. The church works humbly to serve each other because of our hope in God. And we're gonna see that in two ways. First, in verses one through four, we're going to see that elders humbly lay down their lives for the sheep. And that's gonna be longer, so don't panic. They're not two equal halves. When it's two o'clock and I just finished point one, it's, we're gonna be done by two of five at the latest. Um, and then our second point is going to be that the church humbly lays down their rights for each other. So the tone of this passage is humble service because of the glory of God. So I'm gonna begin by reading the first four verses for us again. If you have your Bibles, First Peter chapter five, it'll be on the screens as well. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here, in light of the glory of God, Peter is calling elders to lay down their lives for their sheep. This is our first point today. And in doing this and calling them to lay down their lives, he's stressing two 
things. He's stressing the role of a pastor, what it is a pastor or elder does, and he's stressing the posture, how it is they fulfill that. And in terms of role, Peter calls this group of men in chapter 5, verse 1, elders. Their role is that of an elder. Their title is an elder. Now, if you've been here at church before, you've heard people like Devin come up here and say, I'm an elder at the church, or maybe he he comes up and says he's a pastor at the church. I've already used pastor and elder interchangeably in here. Sometimes I introduce myself as an elder. Sometimes I introduce myself as a pastor. And you might wonder if we have a massive identity crisis going on, trying to reconcile all of these words that culture used. But actually, this text in 1 Peter is key to helping us understand what an elder is and how the Bible speaks of it. The title of elder can mean, in a broad sense, just someone who is older, but when the New Testament authors are writing about it in the context of a church, is an official title. It's a position of elder. And that position is defined in this text by two other words which describe what an elder does. So if elder is a title, what does an elder do? Well, we see an elder is called to oversee the church. The word for overseer in Greek is the same word that gets translated, and depending upon your church background, as bishop. So to be an overseer is to be one that in English cultures they often say is to be a bishop, an overseer. An elder oversees the church. But of the two commands Peter gives, one of them is the head command, The head command to the elder is the verb to shepherd. Peter appeals to the elders to shepherd God's flock. And the word shepherd is the term we get pastor from, the Greek word being poimen. To be a pastor is just to be someone who tends the sheep of a pasture. See what they did there? It was really novel. And so what is an elder? An elder is someone who pastors. An elder is someone who oversees. And so Peter is using all these words interchangeably. Where elder is the title, the other names just define what the title does. Elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. We see those used in the New Testament. They're all multiple ways of talking about the same office. And so a non-vocational elder like Devin is just as much a pastor of the church as I am. We are both pastors in this church. To talk of an elder is to talk of a pastor. And to be a pastor is to be an elder. And we see that Paul understood this too because in Acts 20, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself and he speaks with the exact same themes describing the exact same thing in Acts chapter 20. In verse 17, we get a little bit of the history where he says this, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said a lot of stuff. We're gonna skip to verse 28 where he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves And all the flock, an elder is a shepherd, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. An elder shepherds, an elder oversees the church. And we also see that Paul talks about how essential the establishment of elders was to the early missions movement. As the apostles, so those are those who are eyewitnesses of Christ's suffering. That's when they use the term apostle. That's what they're talking about. Eyewitnesses to Christ's suffering. As they went and they proclaimed the gospel of God, um, they evangelized to the lost. 
these Christian communities formed. These Christian communities were the early churches. And the next step that the apostles saw as being important was to go to those churches and to help them establish for themselves their own elders, their own pastors. We see this in Titus 1 verse 5. This is why, I, so Paul's saying this to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Wouldn't you like to know this in this day by the really immediate form of a letter? How long was Titus here before he ever knew why he was left here? And now Paul's like, hey, I bet you're wondering why you're alone in this dangerous town. I'm here I'm writing so that you can establish elders, so you might put what remains in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We also see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul's writing to, sec, to, not to 2 Timothy, to the OG Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the church is God's plan. We see this at the end of Matthew. The church is God's plan to make disciples of all nations. And in order to do that, he has given the church specific offices which help it in its mission of disciple making. The role of elders in both the good times and in the bad, in times of success and in times of suffering, is to oversee the church by shepherding and caring for the flock. Our culture today cringes at ideas of authority because we've seen authority be, be misused. The church itself in various times in history has abused authority. But it's because of that abuse that we should strive to understand and equip ourselves with these passages all the more. Because if the elders of your church are willing to apply this text to themselves... And if you as the church are willing to hold elders to this standard and appoint elders who are committed to living this way, then you are in the safest place of trusting that God knows what's best for you. When we understand and apply this text, we realize that whatever the relationship our culture has with authority, that God wants good for us in this. That God is after our well-being. That God is after our joy and his mission. And this is because... While the role of an elder is to shepherd and to oversee the church, the posture of the elder is to do so like Christ has done for the church. This is a good thing because in all of the interactions the church has with their elders, they are to be reminded of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd Peter talks about here, he is the one who will one day come and take the church back. So these under shepherds, myself and the other seven men, we are just placeholders. We are hired hands from the good shepherd who is going to be held responsible to one day give the church, I always say this, is there will one time be a perfect church and I won't get to pastor it. Jesus will. Jesus gets to pastor the perfect church. Jesus takes this church at the end and so we as elders, we shepherd the flock in a way where it points them and reminds them in all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses of the chief shepherd. In order to do this, Peter is saying, yes, you shepherd, yes, you oversee, but what's more important is to understand the posture in which you do all of this. The posture in which Christ shepherded and oversaw the church, right? We see Jesus fulfilling both of those offices in chapter 
2, where uh, he says, Christ, uh, he has returned us to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So both shepherd and overseer are meant to point us to Christ, not some Forbes 500 CEO. And so in order to help establish that, he begins to give three posture texts for the church and her elders. Three ways in which the elder are not only held accountable for their leadership and their shepherding, but the posture of it. And so the first check today is that elders are not to begrudgingly lead, but willingly. Elders are not to lead begrudgingly, but willingly. 1 Peter 5 verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. You see, elders are not simply elders because they possess some unique leadership quality acknowledged by culture, right? Elders are not just a, a board of directors who, if you get some that are skilled in finance and some that are skilled in marketing, they will cut and paste well into the church. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give moral, spiritual, and functional qualifications that a man must have to be an elder. He must possess those. And because of both the qualifications and because of the weight of being an elder, the Bible kind of speaks of this tension for those who would wish to pursue the office of elder. We see this first in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, so again, that means elder, it means pastor, he desires a noble task. Yet, James cautions, James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there's this tension behind compulsion and willingness that is the weight of being an elder provides a burden. You are held responsible. We'll see this later in Hebrews chapter 13. But we also see that it is a joy, it is a noble task to care for God's church as Jesus cares for his church, which means that elders of God's church realize the duality of the brokenness of their office. They themselves are broken leaders and they are shepherding a broken church. And that can lead to elders who don't want to move in sacrificial ways. It could lead to elders who don't want to move towards sticky sin issues because it's easier to step away and to remain clean and to not deal with what's behind the scenes. To not, there's sometimes I don't want to open the door to my kid's room just because I don't really want to know what the status of it is behind the door. And there's a chance where there have been men in church history who neglect the actual care of people because it's easier to see a clean door than a messy room. But here, they recognize that God has appointed you to this position. That God has given you all of the gifts, all of the qualifications, all of the skills that qualify you as an elder are given to you by God and the congregation has said, use those gifts for our good. Help us, do not withhold, but willingly move towards us. Remember what Paul said again in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So an elder, first and foremost, understands that they did not get here by going to a stunning school on leadership. 
They got here because the Holy Spirit and his divine providence so equipped that person in that place to where they met the qualifications and the church's need. And God is saying, execute that office willingly. Care for your people willingly. Elders willingly move towards sticky and difficult situations because they want to be obedient to what God has called them to. And because that's how Jesus came for us. Jesus didn't come begrudgingly. Jesus didn't come under compulsion to die for our sins. He came willingly because he loved us. And elders are to have the same heart of sacrificial, proactive love towards their body as Jesus did towards the church. Peter's after the heart of the elder. But secondly, he says this. Elders are, to be focused, are not to be focused on gaining, but giving. The back half of verse 2, he says that they should do all of this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. When I felt called to ministry, it was kind of in the peak of what was at that time kind of this new celebrity pastor movement. And it just so happened that all of these strands of history combined themselves at the right point in time. We were in America where you can freely talk about Christian faith. YouTube had become really popular. Twitter and, and, and Facebook and self-publishing through Amazon and blue check marks were abounding. And so if you were a kid who grew up wanting to be famous, who wanted to have influence, you realized that you could do that as a pastor. That as a pastor, you could have fame and notoriety, and you could dangerously baptize all of those desires for your own fame as Christian impulses. But Peter says this is not how a pastor should see themselves. Pastors are not those who pursue their position because they want to be pandered to, because they want to feel better about themselves. In fact, it says, another way we can interpret this is not for gain, but freely. Elders don't shepherd because they feel a need to have their egos inflated or their skills validated. Why? Because they're free from those things. Because they understand that when Christ their shepherd saved them, they had been vindicated finally and fully before God. The only eyes, the only gaze that ever has a judgment that defines us had been redeemed and deemed perfect in Jesus. Elders are to shepherd not out of fear of man nor for shameful gain because Christ has vindicated them and given them everything they need. They no longer shepherd because they want something from the flock. They should shepherd because they want to love God's flock. They shepherd out of an overflow of what Jesus has done for them. And in fact, a good shepherd knows that ultimately it's not about gaining, it's about giving. A good shepherd knows that there might be times where a shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I heard uh, a pastor once say that you know a good shepherd, the mindset of a good shepherd is that when a wolf comes into the pen, that shepherd knows that within the next few minutes, there's either going to be a dead wolf or a dead shepherd. Good shepherds know that God has put them in a position to defend the church from false doctrine, from false saviors, from sinful tendencies, and they know that they have been called to execute those duties even if they might become crushed in the process. 
And this is what Jesus did. Jesus was willingly crushed for our sin. He laid down his life so that we can be healed. By his wounds, we see in chapter two, we have been healed. Good elders lay down their lives for their sheep. And lastly, and as an implication of that, elders are not to steer from the back, but lead from the front. Elders are not to steer from the back, but lead from the front. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I read another pastor this week who said, the elder shepherd is not like a cowboy, driving his flock like cattle. He leads them as a shepherd would, by walking on ahead. You see, part of the reason we have service leaders here at church, today it was Devin. Sometimes we have our pastoral residents do this, but as a whole, we want this to be a place where you can see our elders because part of an elder's leadership as defined by scripture is to be an example. Elders are not some anonymous board that guides the church in terms of the budget. Elders are shepherds who are meant to smell like the sheep. They are to be seen. If you want to emulate, if they are to be an example for you, you have to see them. You have to know them. And that means that all of our elders, myself included, know how dangerous the preached word is. We know that whatever I say from this pulpit, if it is in line with God's word, are things that we must lead in. We must champion. We must apply first and foremost as an example. God has called elders to be the first in applying scripture, even if we do it in broken ways, just like you. But remember the context that Peter's talking about here. This is kind of a weird place for Peter to talk about the church, unless the church is a greater tool in times of suffering than we imagine. Unless the church is more essential to living out the Christian faith than we initially presume. Because the context of everything that's going on is equipping Christians to suffer. And here comes the church. Which means a large part of what Peter is calling these elders to set an example in is how your elders suffer. None of us take this lightly. We know that if in God's will persecution would come to America we would willingly offer our blood to wet the first blades. And in church history, that's what has happened. Persecution began and ended with the pastors of local churches. But in times where that is absent, by God's grace, where there's no sense of imminent violence on account of our faith, it should be elders who model what costly obedience looks like, even in hard but ordinary ways. You should be able to watch and see how your elders, how I wrestle and repent with sin, how we fight against it. How do your elders manage the loss of loved ones or sickness? What does their heart cling to when the economy crumbles or they lose their jobs or the building fund isn't going how they think it should? How do they respond to unfair attacks or accusations? In all these things, you ought to have a keen eye on your elders so that you might see how you ought to respond because the Bible has called them to be above reproach and distinct. Now, in light of that weighty description, I want to tell you that when you start looking, you will find things that aren't up to snuff. 
You will find elders who wrestle in these instances in imperfect ways just like you. In fact, I guarantee it that your elders, myself included, are broken and sinful people. But look at the wonderful hope Peter holds out in verse four. A hope for the elder and a hope for the church. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It doesn't begin and end with human shepherds and broken sheep. And what's interesting here is most of the time, Paul does this a lot in his writing in different contexts that he does this, but apostles would kind of boast, of, boast in a biblical way of their uh, office of apostle. So it'd say, and I, I write these things to you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning I was with Jesus, I was taught by Jesus, I saw Jesus. But here, Peter doesn't put out apostle as his accredited role. He boasts of his shared standard as an elder. For Paul, the great, or for Peter, excuse me, the office he wants to find solidarity with is the office of elder. And following that, he begins to really articulate this posture because this is so important for him. And here's why Peter is so fixated on the heart and the posture of elders in the midst of suffering in the church. If you remember, Peter denied Jesus three times before his death. Peter was the zealot who would do anything for Jesus, and Jesus says, you might do anything, but the first things you're going to do are deny me three times. And Peter says, I will die before I do that. Sure enough, Peter denies Jesus three times. And yet, in a wonderful moment of grace, the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples some days later. And Peter's out in the boat, and he sees his Jesus. He bails in all of his clothes, swims towards the shore, and we read of this interaction in John 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, that's Peter, the author of First and Second Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, Peter understood the weight of the shepherd role because Peter knew in a distinct way above all the other apostles that it's only a shepherd like Jesus Christ who could bring a wayward and disobedient heart like Peter's back into grace. You see, Peter knew the nature of his shepherd because this same Peter whose last interaction was to deny Jesus, saw that same Jesus, and swam to him. And the only way we will ever move towards Jesus in the midst of our sin is when we understand the kind of shepherd this shepherd is. He is a shepherd who is capable and who came to cover the sins of his wayward sheep. You see, elders might shepherd, 
but they are first and foremost shepherds as sheep. And Jesus, as a shepherd, did far more than lay down his life for his flock. He went and he took the punishment of their sins when they had left the pen, before they ever came back. Jesus is the chief shepherd par excellence. He died to bring us back and he did so with joy so that us in our disobedience and our disbelief might be welcomed back and commissioned to you be used for his glory. How good is it that Peter's big sins of denying Jesus three times as an eyewitness did not define the rest of his life? But instead Jesus used broken and repentant sinners because he's that kind of shepherd. And his love is that powerful to take the wages of your sin, of your unbelief, of your rejection of God, to bear them in his body so that you can be healed by his wounds. You see, the truth is each and every one of us are being shepherded by something. Whether it's fear of man, whether it's cultural idols such as fame or wealth, something is leading us. But it's only through the gospel where we can be returned to this shepherd. It is only through him on the cross suffering for us that we are brought back to God. If you've never experienced that, I want to call you to this shepherd today. That there is a shepherd more kind and more gentle and more compassionate than these stand-up shepherds you see in front of your church. And we want you to know him and know him abundantly. My brother elders, I want to speak to you for a moment. God has called us to lead in hard and stretching ways. We ought not lose the weight of this text that one day we will stand in front of the chief shepherd himself and he will judge us as under shepherds. We will give an account to him who bent his blood for this church. And yet, every step of the way, he has promised to draw near to you. He has promised to work with you in your weaknesses, to give you joy in your strengths, and most importantly, to justify you, not because of how you led, but because of what he did for you. Your identity is in what Jesus has done, not in your title. I pray that we do not lose the depth of rootedness in the gospel necessary for our role. I pray that we cherish this hope that one day all of the weight of, of pastoring as broken men over a broken body will be removed and Jesus will have a perfect bride and he will say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And church, I pray that our limitations... And our strengths remind you of the shepherd who is not limited in his care for his flock. A shepherd who is not groggy-eyed when you call them at two in the morning. A shepherd who doesn't say, I don't know what to do. A shepherd who can be with you at all times. And in light of this, I think there's three ways we can apply this text before we move on, if you're not an elder. First, Pray for your current elders, that they might grow more and more in these areas. If it is God who has appointed the elders over you, it is God who has given those gifts, and it is God who will encourage and continue to equip those elders. So pray for your elders. Pray for me. 
Secondly, keep your eyes open among yourself to see if there are men whom God would be preparing for this office, whom you would say, I want you to be my elder. And lastly, willingly subject yourself to these imperfect men who are saved by grace. This is the pivot point of Peter's text. Just as elders are called to humbly lay down their lives for their sheep in light of the crown of glory and the chief shepherd, so too in light of the same crowd and the same shepherd is the whole church now told to act towards each other. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise. What is that likewise? It has to do with what was in front of it. The chief shepherd, the crown of glory, the the title of well done, good, and faithful servant. In light of all of that, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In this section, Peter Peter begins to give his second point, that the church humbly lays down their rights for each other. And to do this, he starts by pressing on those who are probably the most prone in Peter's context to want to be autonomous, to want to be outside of authority, to those who when suffering or when agitation comes want to just go be lone rangers. You see autonomy, the ability of maybe even at its chief form of humanism, thinking that you are capable of solving everything on your own, it always promises life in the present, doesn't it? We always think ourselves more capable of caring for ourselves, of knowing how to bring ourselves joy and satisfaction. But what's interesting is just if you look back at history, autonomy typically ends in anarchy and destruction and pain and death and not good things. Biblically, autonomy generally ends in foolishness. And yet we still long for it, don't we? We long for what Satan promised Eve, that God doesn't know what's best you do. Why would you choose to obey God when you can make the decision yourself. We want to be captains of our own souls, chiefs of our own command. But by default, as a Christian, pastor or not, you are under authority. You are under the authority of Jesus. And if we are under his authority, we must obey where he calls us to obey. And Peter here calls the church to obey, specifically those who are younger, by calling them to be submitted, to be subjected, to, with humility towards each other. And here he specifically talks to young men in that time that was kind of the, the rebel rousers and not a lot has changed, but I think we're naive to think that it's just young men who struggle with issues of authority and autonomy. We all feel the pull of it. And yet if you are a Christian who desires to live life in light of what is kept for you in heaven, in light of the chief shepherd who will say to you, we see in Matthew, well done, good and faithful servant, Peter says that you ought to fulfill this. You ought to participate in the life of the church, in this subjugation, but this joint humility with each other to serve the church in a humble and faithful way. Look at how the author of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So you hear both elders and flock... Shepherds and flock are both under authority. They're both held to a standard. And let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I want to clarify here. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus call you 
to be subject to or to obey anyone because that one person is innately worthy or perfectly trustworthy. If you remember what Peter's done in this text, he called us to submit to governments who might harm you, to masters who might extort you, to employers who might not care for you. And here he calls you to submit to pastors Not because they've perfectly earned your trust, but because you trust the Jesus who's calling you to obey in this way. In all things, yes, we are to obey God, not men. So if whatever authority is over you calls you to disobey God, we say, deal with it. We are obeying God, not men. But just as the paper money in our wallet is worthless without the guarantee of the treasure which stands behind it, so too our posture towards human authority is a functional way where Christians ultimately place their trust in Jesus himself. To not trust those whom obediently are following God in authority is to ultimately not trust the Jesus who has appointed them in positions of authority. So what does it look like to be subject to their elders? It looks like praying for them. We already talked about that. It looks like listening to them, caring for them, partnering in ministry with them, And throughout the church history, this has looked different ways in different contexts. Uh, In cultures where nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity exists, that's a place where if you went to church once, you're a Christian. If you're born in America, you're a Christian. If you were born into a Christian family, you're a Christian by default, uh, which is much of the culture in the Western world. This distinction of submitting and being subject in a partnership of humble love looks like church membership. It acknowledges clearly, despite if we pulled Missoula and said, how many of you think there's a God? How many of you are a Christian? How many people would raise their hand? But how many people actually believe the gospel, have repented of their sins, and are following Jesus? That number would probably be much less. And so church membership is you raising your hand, saying, I'm one of the flock among you, and you are one of the elders among me, and we are mutually responsible for helping each other follow Jesus. We are not casually Christian when it's convenient. We are called out of darkness and into Jesus' marvelous light so that we might together proclaim the excellencies of him who has done all of this. You see, Peter isn't calling you, just as he's not calling you, he doesn't assume in chapter 2 when he calls you to submit to governments that you are to be submitted to every government law. No, you're to be submitted to your government. When he talks about uh, slaves and masters, he doesn't assume that you have to be obedient to all of the employers who exist in this world. No, it's your employer. When he calls wives to be subjected to their husband, he's not saying all wives must be subjected to all men everywhere. No, it's your husband. And when he is calling members here to be subject to their elders, it's not all elders everywhere. It is the elders who are among you, which means membership is a way that elders know their sheep and sheep know their elders. And they say, we're in this together. We have been called to a mission in a hostile world. We are the people who are going to help and hold each other accountable in the rest of that process. And Peter is calling actually for three relationships here in this text. And it's these three, three, these, there's a, it's like a Dr. Seuss book. These three relationships form the undergirding of what membership is at Sovereign Hope. Three ways the church is to link arm in arm. First, he stresses the elder's responsibility to the flock. Right? We saw that, what elders do to the flock. Then he stresses the flock's role to the elders to be subject. And then in verse 5, he describes everybody's role to everybody. Therefore, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility. And we summarize the scope of these three relationships in three ways. Church membership humbly agrees 
to serve as the church by together believing together, belonging together, and becoming together. As a church, we believe the same core truths of the gospel. If it is the congregation who is to appoint elders, we want our congregation to agree on what the gospel is. Otherwise, we can end up appointing pastors who do not believe the gospel. We can appoint false teachers and wolves. And so we want to together say this is what the gospel is, and this is what a right response looks like to the gospel. This is what Christian obedience and the boundaries of it are. We also belong together. We realize that the primary metaphor the New Testament uses for the church is that of a body. Therefore, to not participate is to do harm to the body. To act in a role that you're not equipped to act in because you think that's better is to actually hurt other parts of the body. We, I need you, you need me, we need each other. We belong to one another as the body of Jesus for mutual good and service. And lastly, we become together more like Jesus. We hold up for each other the goal of holiness, that we can become more and more Christ-like in all of our efforts as we become better disciples and better evangelists as individuals and as the church, we display to our neighbors and to our friends better the Jesus which stands behind the church. First John says that they, we cannot see Jesus, but they see how we love each other, meaning that how the church becomes Christ-like is essential to our efforts in evangelism. And if you're interested in membership, I encourage you to talk to an elder, um, or you can find a pastor, or you can find a bishop here. Um, you can start calling us all of those, I guess. Uh, we don't have bishops. That'd be weird. Um, you can talk to your community group leader, but I want to make this clear. Membership is not the primary application of Peter's call to the church. Membership is the practical place in which this is functionally lived out by humbly submitting to one another. But the main point of his challenge to the whole church is that they would clothe themselves with humility towards one another. Spoiler alert. The church cannot be the church without humility. Elders cannot elder without humility. Sheep cannot be subject without humility. You cannot love without humility. This has been a huge point for Peter's letter writing in the context of suffering. Look at how he builds this up. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. So he's talking about salvation. Why are you saved? For sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The church will only serve its purpose of caring for Christians and proclaiming the gospel to the lost if individual believers are able to humbly love others as more important than themselves. If the church loses humility, we lose love. 
The church cannot do what Peter's calling you to do in the face of suffering. The church cannot endure suffering. The church cannot endure to the end. The church cannot humbly love each other. The church cannot do anything if it loses humility, loving each other graciously. Elders are called to do this towards members. Members are called to do this towards elders. And how are we able to do this? How are we able to? The entirety of your world, why did Facebook and Google data mine everything you do? Because they want to provide you an ad experience tailored to your every need. Culture tells us that your need is chief. And the Bible actually tells you the same thing, believe it or not. The Bible says your greatest need is to be returned to God because of your sin. And Jesus has done that for you. Your greatest need has been met in Jesus, which means we no longer have to fear our personal preferences or our autonomy because Christ has given us everything we need. Jesus has provided all the things that pride promises in full. This last week, I had the privilege of, uh, with our open house, showing off our building at various times to some ladies who have been members at this church, charter members, since 1968, 52 years, five locations, five lead pastors, three name changes later, they're still here. And in each interaction with them, I was humbled. I felt served. It actually led me to worship Jesus more. They helped me worship. But you know what? I bet there are lots of times where they wanted to run from the church or people in the church. There were times where their own sensibilities, their own preferences, their own desires were stepped on or offended. I didn't get a chance to ask Carol. She's not here today, so hopefully Carol doesn't get this. Um, is that humility? I don't know. But Carol's one of those ladies. And her husband, Lee, I remember, would come to church with earplugs in and his arms crossed when we started playing music louder. <laughs> But here's the thing, they stuck it out. Lee died faithfully loving and serving this church at no loss to himself. Carol is still here bringing her family and grandkids to church. What kept them here was an ability to be humble, to realize that staff and members can make decisions and do dumb things that offend, that seem to distance themselves from you, that don't jive with you, and yet you can lay it all aside because you realize what Christ has called us to as a church is greater than what satisfies you by cultural standards. But 50 years later, despite all of those moments, they endured and for us as a church, our primary demographic, there's a lot of people missing today because while we don't have kids ministry, there's billions of kids stuck at home rather than like crawling over you right now. And as a church, what a gift that we can look at men and women in our church who have not only been Christian, but committed to loving an imperfect church longer than we've been alive and let that humble us and call us to serve God more eagerly. You see, humility assumes that you learn to live life with people who are not like you. And that's what the church does. I pray that we produce many more men and women like this. I gave a tour to Lillian this week. You GCF girls who are in here, in 1968, when she was a charter member of this church, she was your age. And 52 years later, she's crocheting Star Wars dolls for my kids. Kurt, who helped secure the larger portion of the property the Coke building is on, he was 10 years old when this started. You see, humility 
allows us to produce a deep legacy of gospel faithfulness and seeing that those individuals can look back and say, this was about Jesus, this was about his work for the world, and it wasn't about my identity. You see, humility makes the church and grace keeps us. It takes fearlessness to stick it out in God's church. Humility says I don't fear losing out on joy by deferring to others because I trust that Jesus has given me all of that already. And one day, one glorious day, it'll all be sorted out. One day we get our crowns. One day we get all of Jesus in a perfect church forever. And that's good enough for me. You see, as God's church, we can only endure what might stand against us when we realize that in our humility, God is for us. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace and grace abundant to the humble. So let us experience that grace by humbling ourselves and loving each other. The church is not perfect, and yet it is God's perfect plan for this age. And one day it'll be perfect. Ephesians 5 tells us, we, you, the church, it's not just them. The church is us who are in Christ. And one day Jesus will present us as the faithful husband, his bride, without spot or blemish or any such wrinkle. And don't we long for that day? Don't we work for that glory? Which means that as we suffer from within and without, we ought to learn to use the church as the wonderful means of grace that God gave us, faithfully serving each other for our good and for God's mission, because he is worthy of all of our trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this seems like an odd aside in Peter's letter, which is so rich in the hope of the gospel, and here comes a lecture on elders and some implications for church membership. And Lord, it is so easy to belittle a gift of the church which you shed your blood for. It is easy for me as an elder to view what I do as just a job. It's easy for members to see their life on church as something they do on a Sunday. And yet beyond the meeting of the church is the life of the church wherein you have called us to interact with each other in ways that remind us of the chief shepherd and show the world that there is something better than false shepherds. So Jesus, I pray that you equip in us a humble church, a humble team of elders, a humble membership, hungry to show others the grace which is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ, eager to work in hard places and in difficult times because held out for us is the hope of glory. And we pray all of this. We pray for the service of this church in this city, for your glory and for our good. Amen.